Hey, Brittany. Hi, Chris. So we're back for another edition of our podcast with our good friend from South Bay, Nancy Durkin. Hey, Nancy. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. How are you today? I'm good. Well, it's a rainy day where I am, but it's going to be a sunny day, I'm sure, whenever somebody listens to this. Right. Thank goodness by the time someone listens to our podcast, the sun should be back out and it should be warm outside wherever they are. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about an interesting topic. This is Overdose Awareness Month and August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, You know, it's been such a hot topic in so many ways because opioids in particular have affected so many people. You know, it's difficult for anyone to say that they don't know somebody that's been affected by opioids and particularly um, they've been immune to someone who's died from it. It's really a significant disease and played such a big part um, in what we see and hear, even politically, because it's it's such a dynamic issue. It is, and you know, the, the, you can drive through neighborhoods and you'll see a sign with the number on it and a heart next to it, and it's it's a house where somebody has lost somebody that they loved and cared about due to an overdose, um, and. You know, it, it is so powerful to see those and meet people who have just been so deeply affected by substance use disorders. Well, luckily today, I think we have a couple of great guests. Um, we have Eamon Koffel from the Attleboro Police Department who works with their POP team that specifically helps people with opioids. And we also have uh, Jessica Eagles, who is one of the directors here at Fuller Hospital, who has a lot of experience herself. And I think that both of those will be able to create a great opportunity for us to discuss some of these issues. And um, y'all had a great interview that you had with Eamon, and then we had a great interview as well with Jess. Can't wait for people to get to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. So now our guest is Jessica Eagles. Jess, I'll let you kind of describe who you are here at Fuller Hospital just a little bit. So I am the Director of Systems and Leadership Development here at Fuller Hospital. Um, I have been working with the substance use disorder population for a number of years, and that was the main focus of my experience in the last five years. Um, And so I, with the other organization I worked at, I worked uh, in an opioid treatment program, um, and I'm very much looking forward to bringing my knowledge and kind of that experience here to Fuller on our substance use disorder, our dual diagnosis units. Great. Um, You know, we have Nancy and I are here to talk a little bit today about how um, overdoses really affect people. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, I feel like overdoses happen. How, how, How do people get in that place? You know, so I think that there's a lot of ways that people can arrive at that really low point in their um, addiction. And, you know, there's the there's the um, emotional side of things. And then there's the, you know, the actual how does it happen in practicality in real life. And so, you know, I think that in when people are in active addiction, um, the need for the numbness, the need for feeling different, just 
becomes so increasingly um, desired, needed, wanted that people push themselves to do more and more or a different kind of drug. Yeah, they, so th they're willing to try things. Exactly, that they might not have always been willing to try. I think also overdoses tend to happen a, a lot of times when people are in and out of treatment because mm -hmm. they will, as they, you know, so to speak, uh, in, in, you know, they put together some clean time, as they would say, um, or, you know, a period where of abstinence, um, and they do well, and then they go back out, and then they start actively engaging in the, their previous patterns of use, and their body can't tolerate it, they're on different medications that they got up, put on during in treatment, um, and that really can lead to you know, overdose, unfortunately. Yeah. Relapse, I think, is one of the most dangerous things that I've seen. I know from, from my past history, a lot of the deaths in particular I saw were people who relapsed, and they assumed that when they relapsed, they could use what they were using maybe when they were in methadone treatment, or they exactly. relapsed and thought, oh, I could use the same number of oxycodone, or if I just am doing this, that it's safe for me, and their body had adjusted, and they couldn't handle it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and that's a lot of what we had seen in people who unfortunately had overdosed. Um, and and unfortunately that laid, led to a bunch of fatal overdoses um, in the community I, I, that I was working in. That was also really coupled with the fact that the type of drugs that are on the street have greatly changed where in some areas, for example, where I worked, um, and in the community I worked in, uh, heroin had predominantly been prevalent. Um, and then that very quickly changed to stronger, um, more addictive substances like fentanyl. Um, and, and people became sicker than ever. And also it was, uh, addiction became more chronic and medication assisted treatment. Um, it took a lot longer to get people stabilized on a therapeutic dose. So. All of that can certainly complicate things and sure. make treatment much more difficult to, to feel like you're stable and you know, I think trigger relapse differently. How, how do people usually get into treatment? How do they usually find help and, and find that they can get connected, particularly when it's something like opioid? So the thing, my famous last words is there's no wrong door to treatment. Um, so when somebody reaches out for help, it's super important in that moment to connect with them and get them help in that moment, whatever that looks like, right? There's no wrong door. So if that's in the emergency room, fine. Then the emergency room can coordinate some aftercare in a medication, medicated assisted therapy program, like an opioid treatment program. They can connect them with an outpatient clinic and start suboxone therapy, perhaps that they end up in a, you know, an inpatient detoxification followed by some residential, um, you know, there, there's no wrong door. And the idea is as we're doing community networking and we work to improve our systems in the community, that even if the person comes into the emergency room per se, then the emergency room can funnel them into different avenues that are most appropriate for them. And um, because of some of the laws that have passed, um, doctors in emergency rooms can actually start patients on Suboxone therapy and then transition them to an outpatient clinic. 
um, it's a little sticky to navigate, but that is something that, you know, there have been some laws that have trans, you know, changed, which have been positive. Yeah, I know that that's a big difference because Suboxone was really highly controlled when it first came out. And so it wasn't easily accessible. Doctors had to go through a different type of training. and They could only have so many patients that they were following. You could have 50 patients. They all were connected to your name. So accessing that type of care really was a challenge for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the best things that I've seen happen in the community is, you know, some of the changes with the waivers for physicians and being able to treat more patients and, um, just, you know, having, having all around, having more support has been um, a huge change. And I think we have, you know, we, looking at it realistically, we have a long way to go, but, you know, I think there have been some really positive changes in the way of treating addiction. Do you feel that, um, or, or what kind of words of advice would you give to family members? Um, because, you know, they, they, they get their loved one or their friend or their family member into treatment and they think, oh, good, thank God. And then, you know, they come out of treatment and everything seems to be okay. And then they've relapsed again. And what kind of support or guidance, Jess, would you, would you offer to those folks? Um, I think the answer to that question is always love right? Love and support. And um, sometimes that love and support can just be given from afar. Um, people in active addiction can have behaviors that are really unhealthy, right? So things like manipulation or lying and things that can really tear apart family structures. Um, and so, you know, for, for safety, for other people's well-being, you do have to set limits. But I feel like there's a healthy way to set limits with also showing love. And that can look and sound like, I love you and I'm going to love you no matter what, but I can't have you in the house right now because your behaviors are unsafe. Um, you know, um, it, you know, it can also be conversations like, I just want to be honest with you. You're in a really bad place right now. And it's hard for me to talk with you, but just because I'm absent from your life right now, doesn't mean I don't love you. So setting healthy limits, um, acknowledging that the person's struggling, um, acknowledging that it's a disease and not personal um, is some of the ways that I would think that you could support people who are in and out of treatment. And while they're in treatment, um, you know, I think it's super important to be hopeful and positive and also realistic um, that, you know, you have a long road ahead of you. This isn't a simple fix. And I'm going to support you through your treatment process, even if I can't be present in it. And that's tough. Uh, you know, I, when you're connected to someone having such a personal relationship, I think it's hard to draw those lines. I think that's why all of us really struggle with certain things like that, because our, our feelings get in the way. Um, who can people reach out to to get support to, to help make sure they make those good decisions? So, you know, there's a lot of community support networks for people who have family members that are um, suffering from active addiction or are in recovery. Um, I always encourage, you know, people who have somebody in their family network that's suffering from addiction, I always really strongly encourage them to connect with a therapist themselves because there's a level of secondary trauma that exists um, from seeing somebody you love so much 
go through such a hard struggle and sometimes and often bring you into that struggle. So I always encourage people to take care of themselves. Um, I think one of my favorite sayings is you can't sink the lifeboat. Um, and so if you are the lifeboat for your loved one, you can't also be drowning or you're not gonna be able to save them either. So it's super important to take care of your mental health, your well-being, um, so that you can continue to support your loved one. Um, some of the resources out there were things like um, Al-Anon. There were other more formal um, groups um, at some community agencies that would run um, for people in active addiction. Um, and those were, you know, those are some of the, the resources off the top of my head that I can think of. Nancy, do you know some other ones in the community in particular here that have seemed to support families well? Well, and, and, and I know that uh, we used to have uh, the Greater Edinburgh uh, Rehab Network, um, GARN, as it was finally called, uh, Recovery Network, sorry. Um, and we were having monthly drop-in sessions at the Murray Unitarian Church. But with the onset of the pandemic, those meetings had to be put on hold, but that was a great place where um, individuals who were struggling with addiction or their family and friends could just stop in. You know, a member of the POP team would be there, uh, people from the different uh, support, you know, the food pantries, South Bay Community Services would be there. Um, you know, we all had available people there just to talk, you know, get a cup of coffee, have something, it would be held like at six o'clock at night. So there'd be a little bit of something to snack on. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get that group up and running again. Um, but there are, especially in Attleboro, a lot of supports. And, you know, it would be a case of, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out to Fuller, don't hesitate to reach out to the POP team or, or to South Bay to say, um, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Can you get me some help? Because we all want to help. That's why we do what we do. You know, and I think that that goes along with my idea of no wrong door to treatment. So here at Fuller, um, you know, even if we're, we might not be the appropriate first step, there's plenty of people in the building who really care um, and can help navigate people to the right resources um, at the right time. Jess, can you tell us a little bit about what the differences in some of treatment looks like for people in the addiction process? Um, you know, I know the inpatient and outpatient can look very different, but can you tell us a little bit, you know, some of our people that listen to this podcast can also not even understand what medication-assistant treatment looks like or what that might be? Yeah. So, you know, I think the inpatient and outpatient treatment is really dictated by where people are at in their addiction. Um, you know, people who are in, you know, the acute phase of their, you know, addiction and really are struggling um, and are just honestly struggling to stay alive from day to day because their use is so um, intense, you know, that would probably warrant inpatient treatment where they could be monitored closely medically um, to make sure that as they're detoxing, they're not putting them their life in any kind of danger. Um, and also, you know, things like 
if people are addicted to benzodiazepines that they're you know not inducing seizures because they come off of them too quickly or um, with opioids really to make sure that you know um, you can safely lessen some of the the symptoms of opioid withdrawal that could cause other medical issues down the road um, and so you know that's that's the inpatient level of care. As for the outpatient level of care, it can look like a few different things. One is there's outpatient suboxone therapy, where you meet with a, either your primary care or an outpatient nurse practitioner or other, or other provider who will prescribe the medication and then hopefully set you up with some other kind of um, therapy session either within the same program or just on an outpatient basis. People who are using Suboxone for treatment um, and are successful are people who are usually really early on in their addiction or tip, I don't wanna say usually, but typically early on in their addiction and their chronic addiction to opioids hasn't uh, lasted for an, a really lengthy period of time. I mean, I don't wanna speak and, and paint everybody with a broad brush because all treatment works differently for different people. But just in terms of my personal experience, I've seen the most successes for people who are just in the beginning phases, so to speak, of their addiction. Um, other outpatient treatments are medicated assisted therapy, which is methadone maintenance programs. Um, and I actually speak very highly of methadone maintenance programs because um, and using street language again, so one of the things that I commonly heard was that it puts the beast to sleep um, and it helps stop some of those cravings and the need and the desire to keep up the lifestyle to, to uh, seek out the drugs. And so when people are on methadone maintenance in the community um, and the, the methadone is at a therapeutic level, it helps with the cravings, it helps with addiction, and then it can help people focus on the behavior. Um, one of the great things in Massachusetts that I think has uh, really been a positive thing is that in order to be in a methadone maintenance program, you actually uh, have to engage in two hours of counseling, per, I'm sorry, one hour of counseling per month and preferably two at minimum to continue receiving the medication. Um, and there's always, you know, different circumstances and one-offs and, you know, but basically that is the structure of methadone maintenance programs. And so, um, you know, the medication is only one piece of the treatment um, and the hard work is really done in the therapy and in the counseling to move forward. Um, and so, you know, that's my uh, take on inpatient and outpatient care. Yeah. I know it can be such a, a different thing uh, based on what people's needs are at the time and what they feel like they can do. Exactly. Um, Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about what South Bay does in particular that helps right. deal with addiction there? Right. Um, uh, so the, the um, South Bay, especially for the Southeast region um, of Massachusetts, we have th we have three locations. We have the Attleboro office, we have the Swansea office, and we have the Brockton office. Our Brockton and Swansea offices are also BSAS. They're the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services units. So there is the more aggressive kind of outpatient treatment modality available at those two offices. And then here in Attleboro, we have... Um, you know, we do the individual outpatient um, services and we have 
multiple, multiple um, uh, licensed clinicians in alcohol and drug addiction. So we try to streamline those people who are um, transitioning from either an inpatient or from a BFAS unit program um, over to those clinicians to help continue their um, support of recovery. So we, we have a, a variety of, of venues. We have the, the, the day program and then we have the individual outpatient therapy services. And it, and it is important to have that therapeutic relationship with somebody that's right there in your corner, understanding the addiction and providing you with the support. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough about BSAS. Um, I think that they are, you know, they are very progressive and wanting to help the patients. Um, the, the individuals who work for BSAS are always very considerate of the patients and their struggles. Um, and so um, in our dealings with BSAS, it's just overall been a really positive thing and another positive support system to um, you know, move treatment forward in the community. And, and um, it's really, it's, I, you know, I think that that's just an incredibly positive thing. Um, and I think it's another thing that shows that Massachusetts is taking a progressive approach to treating addiction. Right. And, and it gets down to that, that this is not a character flaw in the individual. This is Correct. an addiction. This is, this is a serious, you can call it medical, medical a, a problem. You know, if you're going to go to your doctor for your gallbladder, you know, let's get you to the right treatment for your substance use. You know, it's yeah, and I think that that's been a big change in substance use disorder treatment um, over the years. I think that there's a long way to go um, in the treatment. Um, but I think that there's been incredible amount of progress to moving this away from a moral, issue um, and, and naming of what it is that addiction is actually a disease um, and that it needs to be treated as such, you know? And, um, you know, I think that that's the biggest thing that I remind people um, when I work with families in the community um, is that, you know, this isn't a moral flaw. They are not a bad person. They are not evil. Um, They're just a person with a disease who is struggling. Right. Absolutely right. Jess, if you had one thing that you could see happen that, that made things work even better, what, what magic wand would you, where would you point that magic wand to make things continue to progress the way they need to? I think if I could wave a magic wand, I would make the warm handoff process seamless between all organizations in the community. Um, I think where you know systems fail is where one treatment ends and another treatment begins and the space in between those. And that's a real high risk time, um, you know, in a high risk transition period. And that's, you know, people in treatment or in early treatment are, are ambivalent as it is. Um, about being in that treatment because treatment is hard work and it feels hard and it's scary um, at times. And so having that constant support as you're navigating that 
process is super important. And also there's just different systems. There's intake coordinators, there's you know, case managers, there's therapists, there's doctors, there's psychiatrists. And you know, that's just difficult for any average person to navigate, right? Those systems are complicated for any person, regardless right. of their struggle or not. Um, and so if I could wave a magic wand, it would it would be to change that or to make a warm handoff process for every transition and treatment. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that we maybe underestimate is what a, a terrible thing it does to your self-confidence to, to need to conquer addiction because so much of you gets torn apart by it. And then navigating a system and continue to have a, the confidence that you can persevere and continue to do things without relapse. And then you're faced with relapse and relapse feels so defeating that trying to maneuver that process and feel like you have those supports that connect the dots and don't drop off um, you know, that it plays such a huge part in how people are successful when they feel like they can continue to have the confidence to move forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, without even considering navigating the process of, of treatment, you know, recovery isn't a straight line um, and it's never going to be a straight, straight line and there are going to be relapses and there are going to be bumps. Um, and, you know, that treatment support, that treatment and support is really just um, super Im important uh, to wrap around that individual and show them that there is a reason that we want them here and we want them to recover. Well, Jess, I think you provided such great information and we couldn't be more thankful for your presence and your input for us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jess. So for today's guest, I would love to introduce to you, Eamon. Um, he is part of the Attleboro PD. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'd love to dig right into it. Um, can you please tell us a little bit about your program, um, Project Sapien? I read a lot about it online. <laughs> so so uh, Project Sapien is more about uh, humanizing the, uh, the badge of being a cop and what it's like. Um, as a police officer from, uh, from my perspective, right. From, uh, from what I do and, uh, and talk about all the issues, societal issues that we deal with on a day in and day out basis. Um, and it, at work, um, at, at a borough PD, um, my primary focus on my, in my unit that I'm in charge of the problem oriented policing unit, um, is, uh, one of, one of the, uh, one of the missions that we have is to help victims of overdoses. Okay. That's pretty neat. So, um, given it, it is overdose awareness month, um, can you tell me a little bit more of what you might be, um, doing this month? So this month, since overdose awareness, um, we're doing a lot more outreach to our overdose victims, uh, see how they've been doing, where they're at. Um, we have a mix of uh, individual victims between uh, whether they're uh, 
in uh, treatment right now, getting started on treatment or, or towards the end of their treatment, we, we kind of keep, try to keep up with, uh, with a, a lot of them because, uh, you know, it's, it is a large number of individuals that we, uh, that we, uh, deal with and try to help. So for this month, it's more just, uh, with the awareness is more just outreach, I guess, to uh, a lot of the overdose victims and their families. Okay, now that's pretty cool. And um, Nancy, do you have any insight on that? Well, I, I have, a, I always do. Um, so I, I know over at South Bay, we really appreciate what we fondly refer to as the POP team. Um, and working collaboratively with the police department um, for our folks who are struggling with substance use and making sure that they're aware that, especially in the Alboro, and I think some of the surrounding towns, that the police departments really are making a very proactive understanding that substance use really is part of an addiction and that looking at it not from a criminal offense kind of thing, but a way of helping and supporting people. And I know that, um, especially with the Attleboro POP team, that you know the, the support is there to provide transport to a rehab facility. Ian, did you wanna jump in on some of these activities? I know that, that you guys have been doing and, um, trying to get some support services up and running for people. Yeah, so um, actually, so at the start of the new year, um, when I uh, uh, took command of the unit, uh, one of the things I wanted to make sure we have is a list list of treatment facilities that have beds available. Uh, that used to be a big struggle of ours. We used to call around all over the state trying to find beds, but I ended up uh, connecting with uh, Gloucester PD, uh, the Gloucester Police Department. They actually have an officer that sends a daily uh, email every morning at like anywhere between 6.30, a.m. and a list of uh, rehab facilities or hospitals that have beds available for, uh, uh, for uh, substance abuse uh, uh, victims or, or those who are seeking treatment. So it helps us to really uh, uh, navigate that side of the world which which has worked to our advantage where we were able to secure a bed in you know during that morning and end up taking um uh, uh, an addict to a facility wherever it might be i mean uh, i i've already told you know i've told my guys i don't care where in the state you guys have to go to take you know these uh, these individuals but you know let's secure them a bed right because it, it at that moment when the person is saying you know what yes i'm ready i really want to do this you know let's get them to a facility as quickly as possible let's not lose this moment yeah and, and that's something that that i've learned over the years of of doing this is uh is when they have that moment of clarity of yes i do need that help you have to literally seize it i mean i've i've gone where um, years ago where where I've gone working in the evening on the pop team three to 11 and we had an overdose uh, victim who had that moment of clarity where they had enough wherewithal to say yes I need help and I came in the very next day at 7 a.m and took him right to a facility uh, when I when I secured him to bed and at the time uh, with the height of the opioid epidemic it was still kind of uh, different for our rehab facility to get an officer to show up with somebody like, Hey, you know, so there were, at first it was a little, uh, 
I guess, I don't know if they were leery or they just didn't know what was, all right, what's a cop doing here? This is something new. So uh, it, it kind of became a lot more uh, normal, uh, I guess, to call it to see an officer with, with a victim of an overdose or, or an addict and, and have them transport them to a rehab facility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I do have to ask, so given that, so when you're dealing with someone that has overdosed, how comfortable are they reaching out for help? Oh, not, not a, a lot of time, not at all. Um, it's, it's the daily struggle that a person who's suffering from substance abuse they have in terms of reaching out to actually admitting that they have a problem or they need help. And, you know, a lot of times uh, the addicts uh, or, or those who are addicted, they, they tell me that, oh, no, no, I'm going to stop. This is enough. You know, meanwhile, it's their sixth overdose, let's say, you know, so so it's it's one of those where, you know, I continue and my team continuously makes contact with that individual. And usually at first they think I'm coming at them in a criminal perspective, which I understand that because hey, I'm a cop too. And, and uh, I used to do a lot of uh, narcotics detective work uh, in the past. And that, that's where my background uh, mostly comes from. And, and I get that. And, but a lot of times I tell them, you know, listen, forget about my badge. I'm not here for that. I'm here to get you better. And, and that's it. So, you know, I show up, we show up, we're not in uniform or just like this pretty much in plain clothes. So it, it, it's a lot less uh, intimidating, I guess, if you want to call it, uh, to the uh, uh, victim and, and the families also that are involved. And we try to uh, basically build a rapport. At first, it's a lot of rapport building. You know, they need to trust us and we need to trust them. It's, 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 uh, it's first couple of days, first week, it's going to be like that. We have to work on um, our rapport. And I usually always tell them that, listen, I'll do everything I can to get you to a facility, but you also have to meet me halfway where it's not just going to be a, you know, one, three, two week detox. It's going to be that, but then there's stuff down the line also that you're going to do to help. So, so I make it very clear to them that it's going to take a lot of work. It's not going to be an easy road and there's going to be, uh, there's going to be, uh, um, uh, fallbacks, you know, you might overdose again. I mean, that's all understandable. You know, that's, that's part of the struggle that we deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously you have situations where people are looking for help and they want the help, but what do you do with the victims that don't want any help? What happens after that? I'm very persistent. (laughs) So, um, I mean, in the end, if they don't want the help, um, what we've now done actually is partnered with uh, CCBC, uh, Community Counseling of Bristol County, and um, which we have a social worker once a week that goes with us. And what, what, I, what I do is on that day, I stack, um, I'll call them stack, I'll stack the, uh, the um, most likely to overdose again, or most likely to reaffect, you know, so, so the high risk, there we go. All right. So the high risk individuals, I stack them on that one day and we go with the social worker and I, you know, then have the social worker talk to them just to show them that, listen, I'm, I'm really not here to flip you to be a confidential informant where I'm going after you. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here for that. Uh, I'm here to get you better. And, and that's it. So they start to realize it and, and slowly they come around. Um, for those that really never do come around, unfortunately, 
Um, and here's the reality of it as, as with my, you know, we are so busy is we have to go to the ones that really need, want and need the help because I can't waste 40, 50, 60 hour man hours on somebody who's really does not want to want to get, get help. Uh, we've had a guy uh, tell us that uh, I'm going to die with a needle in my arm. I don't want any of your help. It's, it's so there's, there's really not much you can do with somebody who has that sort of mindset. Are you finding um, that their networks are more uh, open to getting their own Narcan so that they can help their friends if they do go into an overdose? Are you seeing more Narcan available on the street these days? I, I am seeing Narcan available on the streets where you can just go into uh, you know different organizations, whether it's Perry or uh, or uh, Learn to Cope, uh, you know different organizations that you can. Uh, grab uh, Narcan from them. Um, I do find that more Narcans out there and available for people. So yeah, I do, I do see that. That's great. You know, whatever we can do to help people mm -hmm. stay alive. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and the other thing is, is with, with those who are, you know, really struggling and and uh, tell us they don't want help. Um, I've I've had phone calls, you know, uh, come into the come to me uh, weeks later, where they finally say, "All right, yeah, you know what? I, I I need something. I need help, or I need this, or I need that." And, and then we 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 kind of start back up again. And it's not like I completely drop them as as somebody who needs help. I still have them every once in a while. We'll check in, see how they're doing, all that stuff. Um, but again, there's there's that fine line between um, also uh, uh, making sure that they understand that I'm not here to charge them criminally. I'm just here to make sure that they get the help they need. Yeah, you know, it's you know, the timing was too bad that the, the pandemic came along. Yeah. The GARN meetings really provided a I think a safe environment where people could drop in and they they could talk to one of us providers being in the room, get a cup of coffee, some dessert. And, you know, it wasn't just the people who were struggling with addiction, but their family yep. members and their friends just to have a place to go and talk. And yep. you know, hopefully we'll be able to get the GARN meetings back up and running again. Yep. Absolutely. Huge help. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and regarding the pandemic too, so have you noticed any changes or increases in overdose? Oh yeah, uh, pandemic has been horrible uh, to uh, not just you know law enforcement to do our jobs, but uh, also to overdose victims and, and even mental health uh, patients. Um, I've I've seen a skyrocket with mental health calls, uh, emotionally disturbed person calls that that we have as as us we have to deal with. Um, and, and same with overdoses that has gone way up because the, uh, the, uh, facilities or, or the treatment centers weren't open or they weren't accepting anybody, you know? So, so it made it very, very hard to really have options out there where we, we didn't really have options. See, I feel like it definitely has been an upkick and, um, Chris actually found online that since 2015, overdose deaths have increased by 29.6%, so almost 30%. That's well, in, in, in coming, you know, again, when, when I was doing my narcotic side, narcotic investigations, uh, you know, we found the increase in the purity of uh, 
fentanyl has sky, you know, has gone up substantially. Same thing with the purity of, of heroin, same with the uh, uh, other drugs that are starting that made their way uh, to New England that that caused that increase since uh, 2015. So, I, I mean, I believe it. We, you know, I got to see it firsthand on, on you know, out there uh, when I was doing my investigations. Um, I know last year that there was a run of, uh, what was it, was marijuana with laced with fentanyl. Is that still happening? At, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fentanyl uh, laced uh, marijuana and fentanyl laced, uh, well, uh, cocaine laced with fentanyl. Okay. Yep. Such, a, such a risky, such a risky thing, you know. Yeah. For, for, what, for what we need for, for our purposes um, is just the more help. Uh, that we can get to the victim, the better. Um, that, that's one thing, you know, with, with my unit is, is I try to involve as many organizations in the community, uh, whether it's Bristol County or even statewide, uh, Department of Mental Health, uh, CCBC, uh, PARI, you know, all these organizations, I have no problem reaching out to every single one of them to try to get that. You know, that's why I connected all the way to Gloucester PD. So that way we can, you know, I have, every resource available to me to in order to give all this information out and get people the help that they need. No, that's excellent that you're keeping your options open because when you're in crisis, you need whoever can respond the quickest to get that person help. Um, yep. Do you welcome calls from the community, family members, friends? Actually, yeah, yeah. Yesterday, I had a uh, I had a phone call uh, from a father uh, about his 18 year old son uh, and his uh, drug abuse habits, and uh, we ended up uh, meeting with the son and the uh, family. And at the time, I had uh, the social worker with me, and we signed him up for a partial program. So, so we do get phone calls, and and depending on the phone call, sometimes I'll wait till I get the social worker and then, you know, we'll go down together, uh, depending on what it is, how, you know, whether it's very extreme or something that needs to be addressed right away, or it can wait a couple of days until I have more resources available to me. And then I'll go have a, you know, meeting with, with the family. So it's the best way just to call the general line at the Arboro PD and, and just ask for a member of the POP team? Or yeah, just, just ask for the uh, POP team. And uh, if we're not in the office, you'll either get our voicemail, which you know we respond to right away, um, and also through email. Anyone can email me uh, at uh, acafel at org, and, and you can uh, get a hold of me that way too. Great. Thank you. So how do you promote yourself for families to understand, to reach out um, to the PD over to you guys? It, it's really uh, uh, word of mouth, actually. It's, it's, it's kind of gone, um, I don't know if you call it viral or whatever, you know, what we've been doing here where other cities and towns have taken notice and kind of copied our model on how we approach certain things. We've had meetings in the past with other police departments around the area on how we respond to overdoses and, and stuff like that. So, so, I mean, we are out there, you know, where we, we do what we do and you see it in the social media where, oh, hey, the pop team is here or, or something, you know, so you'll get glimpses out there of, of, of the unit that, that we are here and we're, we're doing what we're doing. Oh, that's excellent. And um, are you guys involved too in the community in any way as well? 
Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I do go to meetings uh, to the Council on Aging where we help the elderly with various issues, whether they're getting scammed or, uh, or uh, identity theft or anything like that. Uh, same thing with the youth. Uh, we're involved in the schools uh, with youth CCIT. Um, we, do, uh, we do work with them a lot. And same with the uh, Taunton CCIT group also. So, so there's, there's, a, there's, yeah, there's various organizations around the city that uh, that we do meet with and uh, and talk to and, and see how we can help them and they can help us and, and stuff like that. Okay, well, no, this is all great stuff, um, Amen. And um, a lot of this stuff, it's good for myself to know moving forward to reach out to you, um, looking to help. And I want to thank you again so much for uh, sharing everything here on our podcast. And thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I think this has definitely been a great episode, um, super resourceful, um, a lot of information for our community. I know that this has been a, a challenging episode, thinking about um, where the future really lies with opioids and overdoses and how it affects so many people um, and wondering, you know, I wonder what's going to be next to help move us in the right direction. Nancy, did, what do you yeah. think? Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, this is such a very serious conversation um, that we've been having and that um, it affects so many people. And, you know, it's almost like uh, I, I keep thinking the more we talk about it, the more we uh, make it possible for people to know that there is hope around this and that there are resources to help people who are struggling with their addiction or family members who are trying to figure out how to support their loved one um, who's struggling with addiction. And, you know, the more we, we talk about it, the more we get people to understand that this is not a character defect, that this is really a, a, a disease. Um, and that, you know, I really think that our guests really brought out, you know, good resources uh, for people to connect to. Right. Well, and again, you know, just for our listeners who are out there, you know, how can they, who, who should they call? When can they call? Um, Chris, do you want to provide some information about Fuller and how people can contact Fuller's intake unit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have a dedicated phone number here that people can reach out to us at any time. Our number here at the hospital is 508-761-8500. And that number can, someone's available to answer at that number anytime. As well, we have our website, uh, fullerhospital.com. People can also reach us if they haven't already to find this podcast via Instagram and Facebook. Um, how, how are people able to connect to South Bay? Okay, for, for South Bay, you can reach our intake unit at 508-427-5362. And you can say, you know, I, I, I need um, that outpatient 
BSAS level of care, um, and they can connect you to the right offices for that. Um, and then for Attleboro, uh, if you're looking for individual therapy services, you know, they would connect you to the Attleboro group. Um, and also our website, they could uh, submit an, um, a referral to the website. Excellent. And also I forgot to mention as well, I'm also a great uh, resource. Uh, patients can reach out to me as well. And the best number to reach me at, I'm Brittany Desmond, the uh, Community Relations, and that's 508-838-2238. And I can direct patients in the right direction. So, well, thanks, yeah, Nancy. Yep. Yep. Did, you, did we want to just say, again, the tickler for next month is going back to school and how are we going to do this? How are people going to get connected to care when they start freaking out about going back to school? I expect um, we're all in for a rude awakening once everybody's back in the classroom in a few weeks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, all right. Well, thanks so much, Nancy. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Take it easy. We'll see you next time. Terrific. Mm -hmm.